Hello and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm excited and honored to be joined by Alex Azar, a Dartmouth class of 1988 who served as the 24th U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services from 2018 to 2021. Of course, Azar served in this capacity at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic and was the architect of Operation Warp Speed, which delivered COVID vaccines and therapeutics to Americans in record time. Mr. Azar, it's an honor to have you joining us today. Glad to be with you, Ben. So first, you studied government and economics here, and I was wondering if you could quickly tell us about how you became interested in public service and the career trajectory that took you toward becoming the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, yeah, calling it a career trajectory would be an overstatement of the huh. intentionality of it all. Uh, so I had been very much a science and math geek in high school, and when I came to Dartmouth, I, um, I had, as a result, tested out of a lot of the distributive requirements there. I had mm-hmm. always been somewhat politically active, and I took some classes in government and in economics and just found uh, that I thrived and really enjoyed them. I loved the professors. I built very deep relationships, especially in the, in the government department and ended up double majoring uh, in, in government and economics. Um, with, in government, I especially focused on comparative government with a real focus on France uh, hmm. as an area of study. And uh, wasn't focused at all on health. Um, I ended up uh, somewhat accidentally going to law school after Dar- immediately after Dartmouth, went to Yale Law School and then clerked uh, for Justice Scalia and was in and out of government, various legal, legal jobs, law firm jobs. And I had been active in the Bush campaign in 2000 and had been one of the deputies to the people running Lawyers for Bush Cheney, which is normally these lawyers group, Lawyers for Obama, Doctors Mm -hmm. for Biden, are just nice constituent groups where people can feel active Hmm. until the Wednesday morning in November when uh, I got the call saying, Alex, we need 200 lawyers in Florida by this afternoon. Can you make that happen? Because of the recap that was going to happen. (laughs) Uh, I was involved in the litigation team in Tallahassee with Ted Olson for the the work that became uh, Bush versus Gore. And as I was helping with the transition activities in the the following months, uh, I got a call out of the blue from staff for Tommy Thompson, who had become the Secretary of Health and Human Service, former governor of Wisconsin, Mm Ask, saying the White House had sent my name over and would I have any interest in being the general counsel of Health and Human Services, to which I responded, you know, I don't know anything about healthcare law. Uh, but I was, an, you know, at that point, a fairly seasoned DC hand as a lawyer, mm-hmm. new administrative law and the levers of government, government ethics, et cetera. And so uh, went over, met, and it was a connection, and I ag- agreed to do it. And uh, I have not looked back since. It became within, really, with, within a month, I knew healthcare was my calling that uh, it was where I, w- I was meant to be and have stayed there ever since. Wow, that's interesting. And so here we are now. Yeah, Indeed. well, to get into, I guess, your time as the Secretary of Health and Human Services in that case, uh, fast forwarding about 15 to 20 mm-hmm. years, um, you know, I'm now gonna pivot a bit toward the US response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, I remember thinking about the COVID outbreak in China in February of 2020 as being kind of a distant, remote thing until, you know, really it wasn't. It's just remarkable how quickly it pounced on us. And so I'm wondering what your experience in the Trump administration was like at that time responding to that crisis in the early phases. And I'm also wondering if you have any, you know, regrets looking back on that response today. So what you do with an emerging infectious disease um, is you, 
you're dealing with something that's unpredictable. I mean, by, by its definition, it's, it's neither known to us nor to our bodies and our immune systems. Mm -hmm. So you, you take the best actions you can, and we basically marched through the pandemic playbook, the pandemic action plans that had been put in place. First, actually, by Secretary Levitt and myself under President Bush, we created the whole concept of pandemic planning for flu, and that, those were carried forward under President Obama and had been up, updated under President Trump. And it's a playbook, and you march through that. And the early stages of a potential pandemic, you focus on what's known as containment. Uh, containment is the effort to keep it away or to stop it from spreading. Uh, so that's where early efforts, like on as early as January 17th, we were uh, screening passengers coming from Wuhan. Uh, we used the first quarantine authority in 50 years. There would not have been, been the use of my federal quarantine authorities in 50 years hmm. to quarantine people that we brought back. We repatriated American diplomats and their families and other Americans from Wuhan as well as Hubei province over the coming weeks, as well as dealing with some cruise ships that had, that had individuals on it who were exposed and potentially affected. And we had to basically build an entire quarantine system, including using military bases, because none of this existed. There was no playbook, no infrastructure for this. Hadn't been done in 50 years. Yeah. So, you have to, so those are all efforts to contain. Um, at the same time, you prepare for the next phases, which is assuming it makes it here, um, and you don't know the virulence, but assuming it comes, you transition from containment into eventual mixed containment mitigation and eventual mitigation, which are mitigation steps are basically non-pharmaceutical interventions to try to slow or stop the spread. When you think of masks, social distancing, yeah. um, uh, we used to call them snow days, but it would be basically um, taking down sub, you know, public transport, schools, et cetera, just places where people are interacting, where disease can spread. Those are those kind of traditional mitigation steps. Um, in terms of looking back, you know, I had an, I immediately offered to the Chinese to send CDC teams in there to help, mm. to learn about the disease. I worked with the World Health Organization to try to get a WHO team into China to help, and to, but most importantly to learn. And we didn't even get that team deployed. The Chinese didn't allow them in until February the 16th. You know, what are some of the things we wish we had known? I mean, just the ease of human-to-human -human transmissibility. Um, one of the critical things about this disease that really didn't become apparent till later, but perhaps one would have known that with on-the-ground connectivity with the Chinese, would have been just what a high percent of asymptomatic infections there are. I mean, we, we, at, that, at that point, it was up, you know, we, we yeah. eventually concluded about 50% asymptomatic. Because your interventions get very different. When you're dealing with people who are symptomatic, you do things like check for temperature. Okay, screen for symptoms. But when 50% of the people who are infected may be carrying and able to transmit, then that's actually something where the public health doctrines aren't quite as established. And you would have to think through, do those interventions make sense? Do other interventions still make sense because you have such silent carrying and spread? Are there other interventions? Um, so this was, I think, for everybody, it's such a novel and not, it's a novel infectious disease, novel characterization in terms of the asymptomatic nature, especially as we've gotten into the variants with the rapid transmissibility of, say, Omicron, um, and, the, and then just you know who, who tend to suffer the most as we learned progressively over time. The treatment paradigms, you know, for instance, there was all that hysteria back in March about ventilators. Well, 
it ended up, and we started seeing this data comparing New York and, and New Orleans, that keeping people off of ventilators was actually one of the better ways to help them with their recovery. Um, hmm. Venting people it actually basically causes um, an atrophy of a lot of the muscles um, and breathing function needed for people when they do start recovering from the symptomology of COVID to come back. And so that's where both the Chinese had learned this, but also in New Orleans, we learned that other tactics like proning, which is putting the patient upside down, um, really gives the lungs a lot of rest and can help the, help the lungs recover. We learned about you know steroids later in disease course to pull down a lot of that um, inflammation in the lungs that, was, that would cause so much distress and lack of lung function. Just again, you're learning, this is yeah. just learning constantly with information, evidence, other countries' experiences on our own. Yeah, it was really a novel challenge. I remember all the comparisons to the SARS epidemic in 2003, but ultimately COVID just wound up being, you know, something so much further beyond that. Well, and that's the yeah. that's the thing when we when we deal with infectious disease, you know, it's it's the it's the paradox of when you're worried about pandemics, the the more virulent and deadly a strain is, actually the less you tend to worry about it from a spread because um, if 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 a pandemic flu strain, if a flu mm -hmm. strain or a novel coronavirus like SARS or MERS if it kills an extremely large percentage of its hosts, it actually doesn't get to spread as much. Yeah. So you're looking at how readily does it aerosolize and spread to others, but also how much, what, what is its lethality, its mortality level? When it starts getting down you know, below one, 2%, you get very worried because then you've got something transmissible, keep its hosts alive, allow them to continue being spreaders. And, We've been learning about this, the you know, COVID-19, really from day one, just the characterization yeah. of that compared to, say, a SARS or a MERS, which especially MERS is so lethal. Oh, yeah. It hasn't, thank God, gotten a big foothold. Yeah, very interesting. So let's move on to Operation Warp Speed, which for our audience, it was a public-private partnership that was headed by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense to accelerate the development and manufacturing of vaccines. And, you know, of course, this initiative, which you led, was quite successful in the sense that we got vaccines less than a year after the U.S. was forced to lock down for the first time. And obviously, there's a lot to ask about uh, when discussing this program, but I'd love it if you could speak to the public-private collaboration that was encouraged throughout OWS, as well as the interagency collaboration that occurred between HHS and DOD to see this operation to its successful completion. So um, I think it, it, it was really important that I was in my position having been at a pharmaceutical company and seen all the incentive structures, how does drug development work, and importantly, drug manufacturing, knowing how difficult the manufacture of proteins and biologics is, mm -hmm. but also the financial incentive structures. And frankly, I use my Dartmouth microeconomics understanding mm -hmm. to help inform that also. Um, but then having been in the Bush administration where we created pandemic flu, or pandemic flu plans, really using the industrial planning model the kind of Manhattan Project, like very, um, uh, very robust use of government authorities to create novel ways of making and capacity for making flu vaccine here in the United States, combining those learnings was extremely important. And then I had two leaders, um, Dr. Bob Kadlik, who was the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, and Dr. Peter Marks, who runs the Vaccine and Biologics Center at FDA. They came to me and they said, you know, We've got a lot of vaccine candidates, but if we if we just rely on the pharmaceutical companies' timelines, it's going to be years before we mm. see anything. And I said, well, we need a Manhattan Project too. We could, and they said, yes, if we deploy unlimited money to this, 
and employ the tactics that we know, we can de-risk development, we can de-risk manufacturing, and we can prepare distribution from day one and do all of that right up front instead of the normal way where you would pace it out. And so that was really the genesis of this because my, my thesis was anything that we could invest, we would have an infinite return on investment. We had just spent $2 mm -hmm. trillion dollars on COVID relief. Any amount you could credibly spend on advancing and bringing a vaccine or therapeutics forward to relieve suffering would have an infinite return on investment. Yeah. We could get the money, whatever we needed to do this. We just needed the mentality that it could be done. And I talked to Secretary Esper at the Defense Department about this because, of course, they're very involved in countermeasures development. And warp speed could not have happened without without Mark Esper as secretary because hmm. um, I've seen many many defense secretaries. This Mark Esper just said, "What do you need? Complete partnership." It was because we had the brains, we had the science people, the technical pe technical people, the health people. DoD has the brawn. They hmm. they can the, the logistics, operations, procurement. Um, just think about what it takes to put the United States military in a war theater, all that goes into that. And he turned to me and said, I got the guy, Gus Perna, the head of US Army Materiel Command, um, the one in charge basically of all supply and logistics huh. for the US Army. Yeah. Army. And so he, he led all of that side. We had Monsef Slawi, who had been the best vaccine developer in modern world history, uh, running the development side. Um, or helping on that on the development side as an advisor. Um, and then we brought in a fellow whose name you never would have heard of, Carlo Di Natari Stefani, who, who was the head of manufacturing at two giant drug companies, who knew just how hard it is to make these kind of products. And right. we built all of this in partnership with the industry. You don't go and you, it's not about bossing, so bossing around, it's about what are the problems? How can we, what are the bases by which risk is introduced, slowness, risk of technical success, et cetera, and how can we, using the full power and weight of the U.S. government, relieve that? Yeah. I mean, one example. We had a pump malfunction at one of our manufacturers. It was on a train. The military zipped out, stopped the train, grabbed the pump, transported the pump. A, a repair that would have taken months was handled within 24 hours, and the factory was up and running, continuing to produce. That's, that's yeah, having the that's partnership remarkable. with the military, but also the partnership with private sector. No, and I think it's interesting that you called up the Manhattan Project paradigm there because what you just described does sound exactly like that, right? I mean, you're getting the full brawn essentially of the Department of Defense yeah. behind, you know, a really important technical effort to but, but, make the lives of people at, better. But yeah. leveraging the private sector also. I mean, this is mm -hmm. what people forget about, whether it's the Manhattan Project or the Apollo Project. I mean, the Manhattan Project didn't happen just with a bunch of scientists at Los Alamos. It happened at University of Chicago and University of California. Yeah. Yeah. All and and all the defense contractors and others. Apollo happened with General Dynamic and um, you know Lockheed and others. It was probably the the U.S. the public people were probably a small fraction of the overall right. infrastructure, but coordinating and leveraging all of that. And that that was really our concept was leverage the best of private, leverage the best of public, absolutely, um, and 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 pull all of that together. But I I just I can't say it enough how important DoD was to to, to this being able to be successful. Wow, that's very interesting to hear. So my next question kind of has to do with what we are now looking at in the aftermath of Operation Warp Speed, right? Undoubtedly, that was one of the high points of the U.S. pandemic response. And being able to access COVID vaccines has, of course, transformed the lives of millions of Americans for the better. But, you know, despite that success, the CDC reports that roughly 15% of the U.S. population remains unvaccinated. 
And this segment does account for a disproportionate share of US COVID fatalities. And so as you noted in a New York Times opinion column in August of 2021, many of those reluctant to get vaccines are Republicans. And this is a bit odd, of course, because it was a Republican administration that developed the vaccines. And so what are your thoughts on the causes of vaccine hesitancy in the United States? And how do you envision reducing it? So um, we certainly had anticipated and focused on traditional pockets of vaccine hesitancy. Um, mm-hmm. So there, you know, there are parts of the United States. We had just actually been through a measles crisis. The U.S. came within, yeah, I think, yeah. 24 hours of losing our measles-free status um, because oh of outbreaks d- derived from vaccine hesitancy, certain geographic communities in the U.S. Um, so we knew we had that. Then you, al- you also have um, various racial, ethnic minority communities where there's, tr- where there's traditional higher levels of vaccine hesitancy, mm-hmm. especially the African-American community, brought on by some very, very troubling yeah. parts of experimentation and studying in, in our medical history here in the United States. Okay, so there's a, there's a foundation for this concern. And so we were very focused on that. Could we have done more? Absolutely. Um, but we worked with historically black medical colleges, the leadership there, the National Medical Association, many others, to try to create trusted voices of authority in, 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 in communities to help people understand these are some of the most rigorously tested vaccines in history, very extensive safety and data profile behind them. No corners were cut on safety or efficacy in getting there, yeah. et cetera. What we didn't anticipate was this other type of resistance that came, that, that came up. Um, which I, I, I can't say that I fully understand it, except there is a, I think we need to respect that in the United States, there's a very deep libertarian type. There's a, there's a strain of um, uh, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. yeah. Educate con- and try convince me, but don't tell me what to do. And there can be a reaction just of, I'm not doing something simply because you have told me to do it. And so the point I was trying to make in New York Times was, Treat people like adults, and try to edu- try to educate and convince with why this is in their interest, why it's in their kids' interest, their grandparents' interest. Um, have trusted voices. So, um, in the same way that I may not be the most trusted voice for some communities, mm-hmm. there are more trusted voices for, say, a more conservative, libertarian, rural community. Leverage different voices of authority in different communities that that can hopefully get there. I'm still distressed and disturbed by where you know where we where we stand on this whole debate. I vaccines aren't political. Vaccines are a tool of public health, and these are I think some of the most miraculous tools of public health we've had in human history. And uh, and so I I wish everybody that doesn't have a very concrete medical reason uh, to not get it would get vaccinated. Um, but that's not the end of the story. We need to vaccinate, but then we've got to test and treat. That's part of us moving moving beyond is, um, especially with these new oral therapeutics, um, we need enough of them that, and we need enough rapid testing and readily accessible PCR testing so that people get tested and they take a pill or take a, yeah. take a series of pills and it becomes much more of a manageable disease just like other parts. But I do think, it, I think what we've learned in the last year, it's not vaccine alone, vaccine, test, treat. Because you want people to feel that even if they do get it, they have something to manage symptoms or be an extra hedge against serious serious health consequences, not just the underlying vaccine. Yeah. So a final question, with everything that we've learned, if the US were to be confronted with a COVID-like virus, say 10 years from now, do you think that our response to it would be you know, better than what we saw this time around? Has well, what we've learned? 
Well, we were, I, I hope we were better every week after week and every month yeah. after month. I think you, any good organization is a good learning culture. And so as a country, I would I absolutely hope that 10 years from now, if God forbid there's another uh, event like this that we will have learned. I mean, we've made some critical innovations. For instance, the strategic national stockpile was never built to replace the nationwide distribution system mm -hmm. for whether it's PPE, PPE or hospital supplies or anything else. It had a very small amount, really for regional dislocation, say a hurricane hit yeah. and took out a couple hospitals. That's what like it was built for. 30 million or something right. like that, right? Well, we had yeah. 12 million N95 respirators at the beginning, okay? Yeah. It was, so it was built for localized disruptions. And then, because the biggest part of the stockpile are medical countermeasures for say a smallpox attack, anthrax mm -hmm. attack, botulinum, that, that type right. of thing. That was the, it used to be called the National Pharmaceutical Stockpile. Yeah. yeah. So now I think we're reconceiving and thinking, we need the stockpile to be able to support a nationwide surge response and even state stockpiling, et cetera. The key will be over the years, we have to keep that going. You can't get pandemic fatigue, preparedness fatigue, and that naturally will happen because at some point, $100 million going to buy N95 respirators to put them in a stockpile is going to be traded off against $100 million going to low-income housing fuel, fuel assistance. And yeah. those trade-offs get made in the out years, not now. Um, so that, that's one. We need to ever, ever improve our data systems. We need, we need a much more modern approach to data that's much more in line with a cloud-based interoperable approach to data where we surveil, we collect data, mm -hmm. and the skills we bring to the table are actual, not proprietary data streams, but rather very high-end advanced analytics and predictive analytics applied at a national, international scale to data, um, and, and get the creation of the data, but, but basically um, make sure we're getting very real-time real -time data. We're still, too, much, too many of our data systems are still dated back to the 60s or 70s. I mean, literally some data still comes in by fax machine. Wow. Yeah. Um, that, that'd be another example of how I think we're just getting you know, better and better just as, as each week and month goes on. I think the Operation Warp Speed, building that as more of an institutional capability, not relying on me or Peter Marks or Bob mm -hmm. Cadillac being there, but having it be part of a playbook that yeah. it can just be activated, making sure there's money there. You know, there's not money sitting around for a pandemic for preparedness or response. I think there should be a pool of money with appropriate controls that's there so it's readily accessible so that you can carry through those first months of a response um, without Congress having to fully spool up and all the politics that go on right. with appropriating money. Well, that's all very interesting, and I definitely have more I'd love to ask, but we are at our time. So, Mr. Azar, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.